I say some of the stuff this morning because I think if we're honest with ourselves and we open this this chapter of uh, of words in chapter 10 to things that go on in our real life, a lot of us can relate in different areas, such as even with the title of this morning, when kindness turns to war. Who would have thought doing something God's way, going to offer condolences, offering a, a love, a compassion, a hand to somebody that just lost a dad would end 20 verses later in a war, a great war that would begin to change everything for, for quite a long period of time for both sides of the, of the battle. And I want you to think this morning and ask yourself, have you ever tried to be kind to somebody who maybe wasn't kind back? You ever tried to show love and mercy? You ever tried to show grace? You ever just tried to be as, as Christ-like as possible to somebody? Because it's what we're commanded to do. It's how we're commanded to be. And when you do so, you've got this expectation, or maybe I do. Maybe you guys aren't quite like me. Maybe you've got this, or I've got this expectation. I forgot you guys don't. But but I've got this expectation. When I do it that way, and I do it Christ's way, and, and I've got this compassion and this kindness and this mercy and this grace and this love, I kind of expect that to be reciprocated back. You know, I kind of expect to be loved back. I kind of expect respect back. I kind of expect just a, a little acknowledgement of, man, you know, what I'm going through stinks. But thank you for reaching out to me. And thank you for, for being this person. And thank you for your help. And thank you. And maybe a little gratitude is what I expect. But I'm going to be honest. If you haven't experienced it yet, then, then God bless your soul because it's going to hurt you when you do. But we live in a real world where it doesn't always happen that way. Where you can truly be as Christ-like as possible, where you can follow the orders and the obligations that we have as believers to act a certain way. And the people outside in this world, they don't have to respond back with kindness. And many times they don't respond back with gratitude. And many times because of that, it, it may be exactly what we see in chapter 10. Kindness turning to war. And I think some of us can relate with this kind of error in our life. And, and, and a lot of times when we get to that area, I want you to know, just like David and his men, we're to trust in God's way. And when we trust in God's way, despite the outcome, God takes care of the outcome. He takes care of the victory at the end. And maybe one of the biggest lessons and main point of this chapter is not everybody's going to respond the way you hope they will. Not everybody's going to respond the way you planned in your mind that they will when you go talk to them, that you pictured in your head. But when they don't, as God's people, we're called to trust God to prevail. And God promises that he will prevail. So, so let's look at this thing verse by verse. Chapter 10, verse 1, it starts with the death of a king. Verse 2, it says this. David says, I'm going to show kindness. What a perfect, what a perfect timing for him to be able to say something like that after what we looked at last week in chapter 9. With the teaching of David's kindness and grace and mercy. And the symbolism there of, of Christ's kindness, mercy, and grace uh, for us. David's kindness to Mephibosheth in chapter 9, it, it doesn't end with his words to, to somebody who was like him. It's now going to stretch even further to a pagan king that he's sympathizing with. And I think sometimes as believers, we need to understand that we're not just called to be loving, kind, like, mercy, grace, and all that good stuff to other believers. We're called to be that way to those that don't believe the same way we believe. We're called to be that way and to practice that and exhibit that to people who may be, quote unquote, 
the enemy outside our gates. And that's what David is doing. David, I imagine he can sympathize because at this point he's probably lost his own father. And, and, and he's thinking about this this boy who, who's now going to become king. And, 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 and despite the beliefs are different, despite their locations are different, he sympathizes with him. And what a great picture we get right there of David just beginning to mirror, like we've said a hundred times before, Christ, who he symbolically represents in this story. That, that, that compassion and that sympathy toward those that hurt. Verse 2, or the rest of verse 2. So I will not only show kindness. It says, so David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him. David wasn't content to feel kindness. He wasn't content just to have words. He was only content when he, he wanted to bring some grief, some comfort to a man who was in grief. And sometimes we need to understand that though we may have feelings and though we may say words, until those things resort into action, we haven't obeyed scripture the way we're supposed to. Let your feelings lead to words. Let your words lead to action. And if it stops before we get to action, as we said last week, true love is seen in its action, then we fail at following Christ the way we're supposed to. So the story is set up real nice. It starts with a sad thing. Somebody has lost their dad. Luckily, it's just of, of age. After some time is what it says. So we don't know exactly how long or how old he was. And then you have somebody who reaches out to help them, reaches out to, to condole them during this time, reaches out to, to love and care for them. And would you know when people get involved with things, even when God's trying to work things out his way, when people get involved, people screw things up. Look at verse three. Verse three, it says, well, let me jump back on here so I can read it right. The Ammonite leaders said to Hand and their Lord, just because David sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his his emissaries in order to scout out the city and spy on it and demolish it? Church, we live in a, in a world, unfortunately, where we try to be obedient to the gospel the best that we can. We've got a lot of mouths out there that want to open that will try to tear down what we do. And it's exactly where this pagan king is. He, he may have even saw this, this initial reaction as a great thing. Who knows? But it's not long before those, those mouths that want to open begin to feed negativity into his mind. So we get a couple warnings right here at the very beginning of this chapter. One, if you may be a king or if you may be somebody who is suffering, when you get condolences from the Lord or from one of the Lord's body members uh, of Christ, take it for what it's worth. Don't let the negative outside comments feed and fuel you in a negative way. If he would have just taken it for what exactly what it was, this story wouldn't have been exactly what it is. But instead he doesn't. Instead he lets this, this negative thought get inside. And maybe even it is possible that these men genuinely suspected David of something. Or perhaps what I believe because of the plan and the elaboration of the plan that takes place here in just a couple verses I believe they're using this in a way to look more cunning and wise to a king that they can promote into war. And that they can get their stuff accomplished. And here's just some of the some of the little brief lessons we get from just these couple of verses right here. It's common for liars to always expect others of lying. It is common of a liar to suspect somebody else of lying, whether they're lying or not. I mean, that's kind of a, a, at a base and as easy as it gets. Maybe you could say it this way. Those who are suspicious have something to hide generally. Those who are suspicious are generally the ones that have something they're trying to hide along the way. So, so think on that. 
And this message of why would a message of condolence to the death of a king be suspicious in any way? I mean, we're in a time frame, maybe not even like we are today, but in a time frame of what's going on here in chapter 10, they would have, have sent large gifts and large uh, 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 groups of people who would have offered this condolences. They, they just had that that mentality, that culture in this time. Period. So it wouldn't have been suspicious at all. If it hadn't been for the negative words of those that this pagan king kept close to himself. So in, in saying that we see David mirror Christ, here's what we see. We see caring and condoling for those that hurt. Exactly what Christ came to do. We see sent messengers. Christ is sending messengers. And then unfortunately, before we get any further, we see that the message is misunderstood. Christ sent his messengers and unfortunately his message got misunderstood. So point number one, if you don't count the other things as points, I guess we have a lot of points if you count everything. Point number one, though, officially, in spite of good intentions, sometimes we're going to be misunderstood and mistreated. Your good intentions don't mean that somebody's going to respond the way you think they should or the way you think they ought to. Good intentions sometimes will be misunderstood and mistreated. Look at some of the background or remember some of the background. Hear what's happening with these people groups. During the early days of Saul's reign, they had planned an awful act of violence against the Israelite city. East of the Jordan, you might remember it from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11, the Ammonites had intended to actually take the eye of every single one of the people. So they, they intended to make them pirates, basically. They said, look, here's the deal. Either somebody's going to come rescue you or we're going to take every single one of your eyes out from you. So this is not a good relationship that's going on. Fortunately, Saul is able, this is his first battle as king, he's able to bring fighting men of Israel across the river. They defeat and defend the outposts of the town. They, they take care of business that needed to be taken care of. And in spite of all that, here, here's a brief history what's going on. In spite of all that conflict and all that history right there, David somehow is able to establish peaceful relations between the Ammonites and his people. Notice the, the, the peace that he had with this, this previous king before he passes. He, he even says, because of the kindness that, that, that was showed to me. What, what was the good intentions that was shown? We don't know for sure. Maybe you could speculate even a little further here that maybe at this point that this may have been one of the places that David used for hiding while he was on the run from Saul. And maybe they had offered him this, this outpost to stay. But just like David, sometimes our good intentions will be rejected by others. Our attempts to maintain friendly relationships can sometimes be misunderstood. And sometimes the very people who you thought were your good friends turn out to be enemies. Now, I'm not going to tell you that hurts less, but I can't imagine what David is thinking if this happened to be. And I do believe personally, it's not it's not worded in the scripture, but I believe personally this possibly was very strongly a place that David may have used in his hiding. That's why he he promotes this this peaceful thing. That's why he said your, your dad had treated me good and y'all had treated me good. And, and, and during that, I believe he thought he had developed friendships with these people. Likes and dislikes and and relationships to some extent. And here it is when he tries to offer these condolences and this caring, this compassion uh, uh, toward them because of their pain. It's then that those that he thought were friends quickly turned to enemies. It's those that he was showing kindness to quickly begin to escalate something into war. And here, here's where maybe just a, a brief note for us to think about while we're looking at these two guys. I don't know if you will call it a point or not, but all the people we encounter in life are going to leave us with memories. Every person we encounter in life is going to leave us with some sort of, of memories. There have been bad times and there have been good times in the relationship between the Ammonites and the Israelites. 
They obviously had a, a good period of peace, but we also know from chapter 11 there had been a great, a great, uh, battle, a great disagreement, a great, a great disagreement between the two of them. So they had good times and they had bad times. And unfortunately, Hannon could have chosen to remember those good times, but when he's fed with this negativity from those that he kept close to him, he chooses instead to remember the bad times. And when we get fed negative comments from those that want to buzz into our ear, and then we remember nothing but the bad rather than the good, that just leads and escalates into more problems and more battles and more wars. If we would choose to remember the good instead of the bad, who knows how much conflict we could overlook and overturn before it even gets to this next level. Hannon chose to think about the year of conflict, not the years of peace. Now notice there was years of peace and only one year of conflict. Yet this is what Hannon wants to focus on. How many of us ruin things that could have turned out to be better and good because we choose to focus on the year, the small amount of the negative, rather than the large amount of the peace and the goodness? That's what Hannon does. And there's a warning maybe for us there, despite the fact of, of what's going to happen. So what does he do? He decides to accuse David's diplomats of being spies. And I, and I think we're going to see through, through a little bit of hidden evidence in, in this whole chapter that both sides probably have a lot of spies working for them. So I just say to, to take off maybe a little bit of the pressure that, that this is an understandable uh, worry that he may have had because both sides probably did have a lot of spies going. But he accused David's diplomats, innocent, unarmed diplomats. And then we see something that turns out to be very evil about this King Hannon and he, and how he sets out to actually hurt the ambassadors and how he does hurt the ambassadors. Look at me at chapter uh, verse four. Verse four says that Hannon took David's servants. He shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle and sent them away. Some of your translations are going to say cut them off at the hips. Some of you are going to say cut them off at the buttocks. Um, you know, you get the point. And no, he didn't trim up their beards this way. Because that would just look like they got their beards trimmed. They literally shaved, clean shaved, half the side of their face. Now, Joe was supposed to be here today, and he was supposed to illustrate this. We were going to shave half his beard. I called him yesterday, and, and he was on board for that until he got to this part about we were going to also have to cut off his garments at the waist and let his buttocks uh, show, amongst other things. And, and I guess he vetoed because he's not here to do this with me. So, Joe, if you're watching at home, you left me hanging, buddy. We had a good illustration that was planned for this. Nicole and the girls also vetoed that idea. I got a lot of text vetoing that idea uh, yesterday when I had it. So, so is that. But here's what I want you guys to understand. This is a cruel and evil thing. As cruel and evil as it would be if I was to actually ask Big Joe if I could seriously shave half of his beard. I mean, that would be a cruel thing for somebody who's taking so much time to grow it, so much, so much work to get that thing finally groomed and, and tuned and, and just nice. Uh, despite beauty parlors being shut down, he has still maintained that gorgeous beard that he's got. So here's a holler at you, Joe. Uh, but for, for these men, back, back to, back to where we're at, th this would have been more than a slap in the face. Some of these men would have actually chosen death rather than have their beard shaved this way. Because what we need to understand is men that grew beards, they, they had, they had maturity. They, they had ownership. They, th this wasn't just growing beards because it was a fad. This wasn't growing beards because it, it was to hide the ugly or, or to make them look good. Either way, th this was something that, that showed them that they were they were free men. A clean shaven face in this culture would have been a sign that it was a slave. A, a clean shaven face in, in this culture would have been a sign that there was something wrong. There, there are some instances where, where men may have, may have shaven to, to have that period of, of mourning. But other than that, 
a, a man's beard in, in this culture, in this time was was man, this was his thing. And he liked it. And not only were we going to shave half his beard, you know, and, and maybe that's a style somewhere. I don't know. I hadn't seen that style yet. I've seen long beards. I've seen short beards. I hadn't seen a half a beard. So maybe maybe that'd be a new style that's going to start. But but more so than just that, read what it says, because priests would have been the only ones that probably wore undergarments, by the way. Keep that in mind. When it says that they were to cut off half their clothes, what is this pagan king really trying to do? He's trying to force indecency on these men. These men would have felt so indecent running around with the bottom half of their bodies butt naked and half their face shaved. That's what's going on. And I can't help but think just a little bit of how that would mimic what the evil one tried to do to Christ on the cross. When he was stripped naked for crucifixion and had plucks of his beard pulled out. Do we see the correlation now of how evil tries to do the same thing? Nothing new under the sun from beginning to end from Genesis to Revelation and possibly even still going on in errors today. I, you know, as funny as it sounds, me and Crystal both had the same idea. I had it and then she said it and I was like, well, if we're both thinking it, we'll share it. I, I thought of Looney Tunes with this. Now, as funny as that sounds and, and, and maybe, you know, twisted as that gets, I thought of Looney Tunes and that duck. If you remember the duck on Looney Tunes, anytime something happened to him, he got all his feathers stripped away and he was butt naked running away uh, at, at some scene throughout almost every episode. And what was it for? It was to make him feel indecent. It was to make him feel defeated. And that's exactly what this king that is trying to produce and pull forth on these men. More so than that, here's what we really need to realize in this culture and this time and how it will relate to us today is to insult the ambassador is to insult the king. Now let's get real real aware it's going for us to insult the ambassadors to insult the king. It was just as if they had done this to David himself. So now you're going to really understand why they say they knew David had been poked and made mad. And for us today, it would be the same principle with King Jesus and us being his ambassadors. And Jesus reminded his disciples very clearly in the book of John chapter 15. He said, if the world hates you, you better know that it hated me first. So we see that relation of however the world is treating us mimics how it will treat the king itself. And then we get to see, and here, 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 this part just blows my mind. I love this section, man. Because we get to see the love that David has in dealing with this, this issue here. And, and I love the way he deals with it. You think about it. If it meant what they did to, to these men, these ambassadors, is, is what they did to you as a king, your response could have been instant war. Your response could have been instant fighting. Your response could have been retaliation. Your response might have even been, let's bring these men back and let everybody see as they walk down the streets back home, butt naked, half a beard gone, and let's, let's, let's get the adrenaline and the testosterone flowing as much as possible and get everybody really mad so that we're ready for a fight. Not so with what David did. Look at verse 5, very next verse. David looks at it, or he responds to his men and informs them, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. I love this because here's what I love. Because a worldly king would have used this as a visual thing to, to promote that, that anger, that vengeance, and people who saw this when they saw it come. You know, commercials do it all the time. Think about it. You can't watch one of those dog adoption commercials without getting just a little bit, a little bit teary-eyed. I mean, you think about it. They show you the worst possible saddest-looking pooch in the world, and then they play the perfect song in the background, and then they throw it on you. 
for only a dollar a day, you could provide a great home for this dog. For only a dollar a day, you can make sure this dog is cared for and fed and watered and loved. For a dollar a day, you could change everything. Think about it. Not just with dogs, we do it with people. I mean, let's be honest. Think about the many different uh, errors where, 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 where man needs help and, and how we show. You think about the even to the point of, of cancer patients where we show the ones that have gone through chemo and, and unfortunately lost their hair and their bodies may have been deteriorated a little bit. And, and we show that we do that to stir up the emotion of people to get a response. David could have done this same thing to stir up an emotion of people and to get a response. Yet he cares so much for these guys. He's not willing to use them as a political tool. So leaders, believers, hear me right now. We are not to use people for political tools. David doesn't. Look at what he says. Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then you turn. He cared more for their own dignity and honor than he did for stirring up the emotion of his soldiers. Church, that, that's a great leader, man. And just look at three real lessons because because some of us right now may feel shameful. That that's what they were promoting. Shaving the beard, stripping off the clothes. It was to promote shame. So if you've been, if you, if you feel shameful, if you felt shameful, if shameful feeling is coming, you'll probably experience it again. Here's just three awesome things that we see to solve shame right here in this chapter. It's in the, it's in the three point sermon, like a mini sermon, I guess. This one's free, right? So, so here it is. First one. Hey, they get new clothes. Now, no, there's not a verse that says David sent them a new wardrobe, but that's implied. They didn't come back naked, okay? You know, it's implied that they got new clothes. What does scripture say for us? Strip off your old garments so that I can clothe you with new ones. What does Christ say? He said, though you may feel shameful, I want to put my robes of righteousness on you. Right? Think about this, this new clothes thing. This is great. This is great. One of the best ways to solve shame is to let Christ put on new clothes on you and get rid of the old junk that, that had you feeling so shameful. Another thing we see just, just briefly in this verse, one verse. It says, I want you to wait in Jericho. He had a place of waiting for them. He, he had a distance for them. That's great stuff. Because look at what this is actually saying right here, what this actually means. He, he's not only saying, I'm going to provide the new clothes or you're going to get new clothes. He's saying, I've got a place I want you to go. And it's a distance of separation. If you want to get over shame, hear me, believer. If you want to get over shame, you got to sometimes get distance from the thing that brought forth that shame. Now, sometimes that means you got to get distance from family. Sometimes that means you got to get distance from some friends. Sometimes you just got to get a new spot. And when you get in that new spot, that's what you need for a period of time. Because there's the next thing. Let me go ahead and throw it. So there's the three things. You got new clothes. You got distance, Jericho. And then you got what he says until your beards have grown. There's a time period here. David has no. He has no predetermined idea of, hey, I expect you to be back by Friday. But it's only Thursday, boss. Yeah, you get one day. He, this is a long period of time. It's not like they shaved the other side of the beard to make it even. This this would have been a long period of time to let this this hair on the face grow back the right way. So you got new clothes. You got you got to get distance if you're going to overcome shame. And then you got to allow time to take its course. Sometimes we think and we try to rush something so fast thinking that we deserve to get over it so quickly. When in reality, God says, look, it's in that time that I'm going to get done what needs to be done. Now, look at what I really love right here, guys. How, or let me ask you to it this way. Maybe, maybe it's better with the question first. 
how loved and cared for and protected did David's men feel? Put yourself in their shoes now. You've been loyal to the king. You've done what the king told you to do. It seemed like a great idea. You brought forth kindness to a man that needed condoning or condoling, not condoning, condoling. And you've got that going. You've done everything right. And this guy brings forth humiliation and shame on you instantly. Public humiliation. This isn't just something that was done in private. This is a public thing right here. And instead of having to come home that way, David says, no, you go to Jericho. You get some distance. You wait till your beards have grown and you got new clothes. And then you come home. How loved and cared for and protected do you think his men felt? I think they felt very loved, very cared for, very protected. I think when they left originally to go to this king, I think they were loyal to David. But I think when they got in this situation, this particular shameful situation, I think they felt more loved, more protected, and more careful than they ever had before. And here's an awesome lesson then for us. It took a situation of shame for the real feeling of love to be felt. And do you not think when you think sometimes and you want to blame God for all the stuff you're going through and through the embarrassment that you're in, that sometimes when you're in that embarrassment situation, that shameful situation, that love isn't delivered through that? Do we realize that God will use embarrassing situations to do, as, as delivering mechanisms to deliver our love? I can't think of nothing more beautiful than when you're in a situation like that and you feel God's love. I'm going to tell you now, to be a believer, you got to be willing to be embarrassed. Because it's going to take some hard, weird, strange, goofy things to do sometimes. I mean, it really does. And sometimes you got to put yourself in a situation where you're going to feel more embarrassed than you've probably ever felt before because you're going to do things God's way rather than the world's way, this kingdom's way rather than, than, than this government's way. And you got to be okay that when you put yourself in that situation, that God may have to get that situation in your life to use it as a delivering mechanism of his love. Because your relationship will be so strengthened. It's no different. Now, now, no marriage wants to go through bad stuff. Don't get me wrong. But it's no different than if we think about relationships with people that we're with. The relationships that have, have survived something hard, a, a rough season, whether it be the pain of, of losing a loved one or, 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 or the pain of uh, whatever. It doesn't even matter what the pain was. But the, the marriages and the relationships that strive through those situations, those are the ones that can thrive rather than survive. And God has called us to thrive rather than survive. This is not just a survival uh, type religion that we have here. This is a thriving relationship with people and a thriving relationship with Yahweh. And if you're not thriving, something's wrong. So so just just a mini one right there for you. But then something happens again. That's kind of how this whole chapter goes. You you got you got like the roller coaster ride going because then you get to chapter six and seven where, where everything's been done right. There's destruction. And then again, David responds the right way. And then verses six and seven of chapter 10. Then these men prepare for war. Look at what it says in verse six. The people of Ammon sent and hired Syrians. Now, this was a common practice. And according to first Chronicles chapter 19, verse six, talking about the same story, the Ammonites paid a thousand talents to the Syrians to come help. them. I mean, this is this is a, this is like a big payoff. A hired hitman mercenaries that he's got going here. And here's what I have to think about at this moment. This thing is escalating so fast. 
Now, I know we paused and took a little bit of time on some verses, but, but in real life, this thing is happening so fast. Here's why I think those negative feeders into the mind of Hannon were already working something in the background. Because they didn't have, a, it wasn't like they had a cell phone or a, t- hey, shoot and text to the Syrians and let them know we're willing to pay them to come to war. It wasn't that fast. They had to send men out to get them. They had to send travelers to go tell them. And they had to do all this. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of speculating here. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying, man, it makes me wonder if these men didn't plan on trying to promote a war the entire time they were feeding this stuff. And don't be surprised when people try to feed you negativity in your own mind that they're not trying to promote a war and a battle of conflict into your life. Because unfortunately, evil people like to see good people suffer. Doesn't make sense and we don't like it, but it's just the way it is in this world. Here's what happens, though. Now, now here's what you got to understand. Here's why I say there's probably a lot of spies going on on both sides, because in verse six, it says that they figured out and heard that David was mad. Well, of course, David was mad. You just shaved half his men beard, cut off half his clothes, and he had to respond the right way. Of course, he is mad. But as soon as they hear this, they get this war thing escalating. They get these soldiers hired. They, they've got an army ready. Then in verse 7, then it says, and David heard. So see, I think both sides were working spies. Don't get me wrong. Because it says, and then verse 7, and then David heard it. So he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Now here's where we begin to get, you can get a little bit excited. This is the first time we see these men listed, listed as David's mighty men. These were an awesome fighting force. These were the These were the dudes that you wanted to call when you had a problem. And and I don't want to spoil too much because we're going to get to them a a lot later or a lot more later. But it's important here to understand this. And and you could you could you could tie these two together right here. David was really nothing without his mighty men and they were nothing without him. Even when David was broken and this kind of spills the beans on who they were for just a minute. Even when David was broken and hiding in a cave. He didn't get his, his good feeling back until these men. Came to hide in the cave with him. We're going to see just in this battle that though these men were able to fight and do a great job at the end, who had to come with them? David. So these men were really nothing without David and David was nothing without these men. You could say it this way. Sure, David was their leader, but a leader is nothing without their followers. Correct? And followers would be nothing without their leaders. Correct? That This same thing works in today's world. So keep in mind this, as I kind of spilled it a minute ago. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, which I'm actually going to read. I don't want to skip over that. I didn't put it on the screen, so if you were live, you've got to flip your Bible to get there too. But it's only a couple pages back. So here's good news. Keep in mind this, and here's what I want you to keep in mind. They didn't start as mighty men. Here's how they started. Listen, listen if you want to be described, because I know some of you hear this, mighty men. Yeah, I want to be described as mighty men. That's, that's some good stuff right there, right? Who wouldn't want to be described as mighty, right? Listen to how they were first described, though. Chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. So David left Gath and he took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined them. In addition, in addition, here are these quote unquote mighty men. In addition, every man who was desperate, every man who was in debt or discontent rallied around him and he became their leader. It was 400 men that came there with him. The point is this. These men may have started as distressed, indebted, and discontent, but through some period of time of a loneliness, maybe that distance thing, maybe that time period thing, 
maybe being around the right leader thing, maybe having their, their whole vision shaped the right way. They became mighty men of David. Mighty warriors. So don't you dare let your rough beginning of distress, debt, discontent, or whatever other words you would use to describe you. Don't you dare let that think you allow you to think that you have to stay that way. You don't because you can become a mighty man. Listen to just some of them. I, I cheated and I said we weren't going to look at them, but I, I do want to just look at a couple of them. All right. Later in chapter 20, verse 8, we're going to see some of them. And in Chronicles, we get a lot, a lot of them. But here's just some of these mighty men who were distressed in debt and discontent originally. One of these was, was Adino. The Iznite. He's famous for killing 800 men at one time. Could you imagine being called distressed in debt, discontent, and then killing 800 men at one time? Look at a turn. Talk about a turnaround. Scripture is full of turnarounds, right? Another, uh, Jasper Beam. He killed 300 men at one time, according to First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 11. 300 men. I'd be happy with that. That's cool, right? How about Benaiah? You better remember Benaiah because he's one of my favorite Father's Day messages we've ever done. Benaiah, he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He also killed an Egyptian warrior with his own spear, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 22-23. These, these were the mighty men of David, taking out 800, taking out 300, killing lions in a pit. Huh? We ought to be some lion killers, some lion hunters going on. Right? This is the way Christians, believers, I know that I call Christians here yet, but, but this is why believers of the king are supposed to be acting. Point number three, and here's maybe where, where we get, some of you may really like this. Point number three is this. Sometimes an angry response is justified. We need to understand and be okay. Now, I'm not telling you to promote the anger right away. Don't think that, because I know some of you hear that and you're like, yeah, pastor said we can go fight and kick some hiding. That's not what I said, unless it's been justified to the right point, okay? Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes angry responses justify. Verse 7. Now when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men to take it. David's not just going to sit by while good men get humiliated. David is angry and he's ready to roll. And just so we can show that scripture ties together everything. There was a point where Jesus got pretty angry. Now, I didn't even remember this. I hate to even admit that, especially now that we're on Facebook Live. I had totally forgot about Jesus the first time he was angry. I always remember the second. But the first time, John chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem because he was obedient to his father's word. He did what he was supposed to be doing. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were doing business. Verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords. Now, notice this. Here's why I love the first time. He had to sit down and make the whip of cords. This was not an instant response to anger. Remember this now. He actually sat down. Oh, I'm not happy. I am so ticked off. And began to make the whip out of cord. You, you, we understand this. I, I think this is a good thing for daddies. Daddies, don't beat your children when you're in the moment of anger. Take some time to make your whip so that they can watch you make the whip and they will behave better than they've ever behaved while you're making the whip in front of them. No, but this is what Jesus does. Jesus is, is making this whip. He takes this time. And then, then, I think it's verse 16. Let's go back to it. Made a whip of cord. Oh, no, still in 15. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the money changers table. And he overturned their tables here in verse 16. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. 
Now, I hear people all the time trying to say, like, Jesus was, and Jesus was, for periods of times, this compassionate, loving, mercy, justified, graceful kind of guy. But you cannot ever convince me that why he was making a whip himself and through tables, that that was a compassion, graceful moment for him. Okay, am I right? I think he was furious. And I think one of the lessons here, because you got to remember, this is at the very beginning of his ministry, guys. How easy would it be for us at the very beginning of our ministry to do what pleases people? To grow your followers the right way, to wear the cool outfit, to be the cool guy, to get the cool thing done. Right. How easy would it be? At the beginning of your ministry to do things this way. But yet Jesus burned with so much anger. It said that he cleaned the temple regardless of the consequences. How many of those people you think left there telling people about that? All of them because it's something negative. Watch the news. Something negative. Everybody hears about it, right? All of them left. Jesus got a whip. He sat right there and made it in front of me. And then he chased me out the temple with it. After he finished chasing me, he flipped over the tables and he made my donkeys and my oxen and, and my sheep and, and even the doves. All of them had to come on. It was a crazy moment. Let me tell you about it. Everybody knew. Everybody knew, right? I think it's okay if we had some righteous anger believers. Now, I'm not telling you to get angry because somebody picked the wrong color or they don't look the way you thought. Nothing like that. I'm talking about when people go directly against God and what God stands for. God's temple, God's house, which, by the way, we are his temple. So maybe we should start protecting people a little bit better than we do. If that's the case, then I think it's OK for us to get a little bit more righteous anger inside of us. There's what he does at the start of his ministry. But then that's not all. That's not all. Jesus wasn't going to let evil be spread and sit and watch it. Three years later, I believe a little less, but we'll go with the normal of three years. Anyway, three years later, that's not important. Jesus comes back to Jerusalem for the Passover. He goes to the temple, and what does he see? Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 and 13. Jesus went to the temple of God, and he drove out all those that were selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he had said to them, it is written, my house, my house shall not be called shall be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. He comes back and the same thing's going on, and he responds the same way. This is the end of his ministry. This is is what we just looked at weeks ago as far as in the real timeline. Uh, This is Passover week. He just come in the crowd and had, he's finally got the crowd back. They're laying palm branches down for him. They're shouting Hosanna. They're on board. Finally, excited about what the king is coming to do. Man, it's so easy to bend the rules a little bit when you're getting praised, right? It's so easy to bend the rules a little bit when when, when, when you want to appease the crowd that's gathered and yelling your name and cheering for you. But righteous anger? Righteous anger doesn't care what the crowd is shouting. Righteous anger only cares what Abba has told us. And Abba had commanded that his house be not made into a den of thieves, but a house of prayer. So once again, Jesus gets rid of the evil that's taken over. Why? And what was Jesus really mad about? It wasn't just what they were destroying his father's house and turning his father's house into. Another part here is this. In anger, Jesus chose to react to mistreatment of people. 
two of the greatest commands. We know them. Love God, love others. He first was worried about his father's house, loving God up and down. And then he also was worried about the mistreatment of other people. Folks, two things ought to stir you to righteous anger. The mistreatment of God and the mistreatment of people. The changing of God's word, that ought to really stir you. And the mistreatment of people. So, so what about us here? Well, what about us? By the way, that was the end of his public ministry. It kind of goes down here for Jesus right after that. So his, his public ministry, his public time is bookmarked by two major righteous anger moments. Maybe yours should be too, because what about us? Should we do nothing when evil people mistreat others? Should we do nothing when someone is physically abused? Should we do nothing when someone's sexually abused? Should we ignore it when someone is robbed? No. No, we shouldn't be doing nothing. David's not going to sit by and watch evil continue, and neither would Christ. He's going to take on the Ammonites no matter what the cost is. Do you not think he knew in advance through those spies uh, on how much how much they had probably sent to gather other armies? I think he had a little idea. I really do. I don't think he might have knew the exact numbers, but I think he had a good idea they were going to get reinforcements. He didn't care about the cost. For the Israelites living on, on the east side of the Jordan, this is good news. But for the Ammonites, it's going to be some bad news. Because here's point number four. Justice is always important to God. Justice is always important to God. We saw that last week a little bit. Still in verse seven, he sent Joab in the army of the mighty men. David is bringing justice to his people. Did any ever feel like the victim? Now, I'm not talking about victim, victim mentality where you, where you just whine all the time. I'm talking about, are you, are you, are you really a victim sometimes? Have your emotions really been stirred? Has your feelings really been hurt? Has somebody really done something to you to hurt you? This section right here tells me that victims can rest assured that they're going to be cared for. This section right here tells me that evil will be addressed. This section right here tells me that perpetrators, that they need to know that they're going to get handled. God loves justice. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of Yahweh. Justice is wonderful when you're the victim. It is. For David's diplomats, knowing that David believed in justice is a wonderful thing. You know who hates justice? Evil doers. Evil doers. Here's an example we can all agree on, I think. This will be one I think we finally all agree on, right? People arrested for drunk driving. They sure don't like it. Right? But they've done something wrong. Those who don't want intoxicated drivers on the road because we worry about our families and the wrecks and the damage that that causes, we're okay with that. We like that. Arrest them jokers. Don't let nobody slide. Get them. Right? People who lose their driver's license to, to a DUI, they think it's terrible. People who keep their driver's license because they know how to follow, I think it's a good thing to keep everybody safe. So we see a good example right there, just an easy example uh, of how evil hates justice, but victims can love justice. If you're a victim, rest assured that God's going to handle it, right? Number five, probably 15 at this point, really. Started as number five. Dealing with injustice is never easy. Anytime you choose to address injustice, go ahead and know it ain't easy. Okay, I don't know where we've gotten this this prosperity idea that that if we would just address things that it's going to be easy. No, when you do things God's way, it's normally going to be the hard way. It's not going to be the easy way. It's easy in that we're relying on him to get it done. And and it's easy because we know the path we ought to be taken. But physically, emotionally in this world, it's not always easy way. Verse eight, it says, then the people of Ammon came out and they put themselves in the battle of the array at the entrance of the gate. The Syrians. And then he lists all the Syrians that came. They. We're by themselves in the field. David's got a problem here, really, guys. 
And here's what the problem is. If you don't catch it, you got to you got to really picture this scene here. He's willing to attack the Ammonites for their evil. But the, the Ammonites have secured so many allies. Picture the scene that the, why Joab and his army, even the mighty men and all that are with them, while they're coming down to the field, they realize. Hold on, that's not everybody in front of me. That That's not everybody that we're fighting because they're noticing that there's people over here coming up. And there's people right there coming up. And when you feel like you're surrounded by the enemy, you've now got an option to make. Many generals, I think, would have gave up. We're surrounded. We're outnumbered. We can't do it. Let's go home and fight another day. <laughs> Not Joab. Joab sits there. And, and I love the division. Check out and read, read those couple of verses right there and look at the division. He tells these guys. He gets them in this big old huddle. You picture it like a halftime speech getting ready, even though it's pregame, I guess. So, so pregame speech is going on. And he tells me, he goes, all right, the best fighters, the mighty men, we're going to go fight the Syrians because they're the bad boys. They're the baddest. They're outnumbering us. There's way more of them, but it's a smaller group. So the smaller group is going over there to fight them. He says, the rest of you, and he gives he gives a charge to his brother, I think it is at the time. And he says, the rest of you guys, you all gather here and you fight here. So he divides his forces as well. And the division of the forces in his brain is smart. He takes less men, but they're the mighty men. To go fight over here, and he leaves the rest here. And then he even says this in it. I love this thinking. He says, if we begin, so you can imagine there's probably this guy like we saw in the book of um, Joshua. There's probably this, or, or Nate, uh, Joshua, yes. In the book of Joshua, where you probably got this one guy in the middle with this horn who's kind of like going to blow the horn if he needs help. And, and this guy's over here, he's going to blow the horn if they need help. And, and Joab tells him, he goes, if we can't handle the Syrians, you guys come help us. But if you guys can't handle the Ammonites, we're going to come help you. And he's got this big old plan developed and, and everything's going well. And he does it. And he, and he begins to, well, I'd say he begins to execute. He doesn't even have to execute it. Read what happens here. In verse 9, so Joab saw the battle. So he notices all this, right? He, here's, a, here's a big thing. I don't want to leave this out. Even though story time in the picture is really cool, right? Here, the enemy may know how to attack you, but God provides a way for you to respond. We, we need to know that. I believe fully that the enemy still does you. That's why I think wherever you were tempted the most is where Satan's going to get you sometime. He knows what temptation gets you. He watches film on you. That's the way I tell athletes. He watches film on you, man. He knows your weak spot, and he will use that to get you. He will. But, but, if if we open our eyes, it says that Joab saw the battle line. He saw that the, there was men behind him and men in front of him and men all around him. If we would open our eyes, God gives us eyes to open, we need to realize that there's also a way to respond the right way. So, so just because the enemy attacks you and knows how to attack you, I don't give you an excuse to sin. I don't give you an excuse to fail. I don't give you an excuse to give up. All that does is say, open your eyes so that you know how to respond the right way. So they open their eyes. They respond the right way. Verse 10, he divides them into battle. Verse 11. Here we go. He tells them, if Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall me. He's going all this right here, right? The faith and the confidence in this speech right here, guys. Because here's what I noticed, and I didn't notice this one until late last night. The faith and the confidence in this speech right here is this. Why he's making all these arrangements. Why he's making all, you know, we were trying to make puppy arrangements last night. We are trying to teach a kid what crate training is and all that. You're trying to think of all the arrangements you can make. Why he's making all these arrangements. Not once does he say, if we begin to get defeated, here's what we're going to do. Not once does he say, when we start losing, here's what we're going to do. Not once. He's got so much faith and so much confidence. The idea of defeat and running away isn't even in his mind. Some of you can't win the battle 
because you've made a you've made a strategic plan on how to run away because of defeat. When defeat isn't even an option, <laughs> faith and trust has got to be what takes over. And, and there's what he does. There's this faith and this confidence that goes on because here's what he says in verse 12. Verse 12's got another three-point sermon, by the way. Verse 12, be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of Yahweh. Or cities of our God, he said at this point. Sorry, I didn't use Yahweh's name. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. This is a speech. I mean, this is a battle speech. We're outnumbered. They've got more than us. They've got us surrounded. But be of good courage. Be strong for our people in the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in the sight. Here's point number one from verse 12. I love it. Be of good courage. Let us be strong. Courage and strength. Here's what that tells us. Courage and strength are not a matter of a feeling or a circumstance. It's a matter of choice. Right? If it wasn't a matter of choice, he couldn't command them to do it. God commands you sometimes to be strong. He commands you to, to be courageous. He commands you to love. And we fall into the world's definition of those things, and we try to, and the, and, and the government's definition of those things, and we try, oh, but, but I can't. I just don't feel that way. God didn't ask you how you felt. Not once did he say, hey, how you feel about it, baby? Not once. What he said was be courage, be courageous, be strong, and go love people. It's not a matter of feelings and circumstances. It's a matter of your choice. So go ahead and write down in your notes right now because you need to feel condemned on it. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose, especially, especially for us as believers, when God makes his strength available to us? Ephesians chapter 10, or chapter 6, I'm sorry, verse 10. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. What more do you need, believers? What more? Point number two of that verse, because I could stay, I could really do a three-point sermon on this one. Point two, though, of this verse is this. It says, let us be strong for our people. I love it. He says, he's telling them right here, guys, let's remember everything we have to lose. You want to go into a fight. You got to be strong. You got to be courageous. You, you, you got to choose those things, not feel those things, right? But, but here's what he's telling them in this right here. And he even says it. Let us be strong for our people, for the cities of our God. Let's remember, if we lose right now, we lose both the people and the cities. This is huge. We got to remember all that we could lose right now. This battle, what he's saying is this right here. This is good. This battle is bigger than ourselves. Your battle as a believer almost every time is going to be bigger than yourself. Because if you lose it, if you respond wrong, you're an ambassador of Christ, and that's what people see. And that's how they see him then, unfortunately, right? Think about all that you could lose if you don't fight this thing right. Think about all you could lose if you failed at that temptation. Think about all you could lose and what could really happen if you give in to the enemy's tactics. Think about it. That's good advice, man. Number three, third advice he tells them, probably the most important out of all of them, save the best for last, right? Put a cherry on top. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Jacob did, Joab, Jacob, Joab, Joab did all he could to prepare for this battle to the best of his ability. Now that's a huge lesson in itself, church. Do all that you can, all that you can to prepare wisely for a battle. And at the same time, know that the outcome's up to God. The outcome is, is in God's hand. We do all that we can do and then we let God do all God can do. That's it. But too often we want to just do the second part. Well, let's just let God do all God can do. Let's just do nothing. No, that's not what you call to do. You call to do all that you can do and then let God do all that he can do. 
So, so, so here's some strong lessons from David's servants. If you ever get in a battle, be strategic. They were strategic, man. Their plan was great. How about this? Verse 11, be willing to help one another. You, you in a battle, your friends in a battle, be willing to help. Hey, if you can't handle them, we'll blow a horn and you come to us. Y'all can't handle them, we'll blow a horn and y'all come to us. They were willing to help each other. Be courageous, verse 12. How about being responsible for others? What they call them? Our people. It's okay to take some responsibility for others. And then, of course, last, they trusted in God. And because of all that, verses 13 and 14, Joab defeats the Syrians. The Ammonites retreat. Things looking good, right? Verse 13 says they fled before him. I, I believe they probably did get in a fight. But I love that the verse right here in the chapter of this section, it doesn't even say that they engaged in a battle yet. I mean, read it. They got dressed. They made a battle plan. They went forth with it. The very next verse it says, and they fled before him. Maybe just, maybe just. <laughs> Maybe just these men coming back at them. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I got thousands of men and 400 awesome soldiers come running at me, that might psych me out just a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like the little guy who acts crazy, he can back up the big man. I mean, you think about it. A big man, I don't care how big you are, but a little dude starts coming. You go, you're like, you got second thoughts. All right, dude's got something. He got something I don't know about. He ain't got no fear. He's coming, right? That's what they do. It said they fled before him. Or maybe it was just the promise of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse seven, where God promised his blessing upon those that were, uh, he promised his blessing upon an obedient Israel. If you will be obedient, I will take care of your enemies that come about you. That one out there? No, look at it at the house. Your enemy will flee if you'll fight is basically what he's saying. That's good stuff. Verse 14. He goes on and says, they also fled and entered the city. The Ammonites, they don't get in a fight either. The Ammonites saw, Ammonites saw the Syrians retreating, so they retreat. Well, hold on. Those are the soldiers we just paid to come and help us. If they're running, we're going to run too. And, and they begin to flee. And it says in verses 15 through 19, David begins to wipe out the reinforcements. Because what happens, verse 15, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. The enemies of Israel aren't going to quit after just one fight. Your enemy is not going to quit after you defeat him one time. The enemy is persistent and he's going to come back to fight you again and again and again and again. Point number six, I guess you could call it, or 16 at this point, like I said. Those who practice evil and injustices, they don't give up easily. They don't give up easily. Man, that's that's one thing. As weird as it sounds, I wish sometimes that believers had the mentality of Satan when it comes to that. Because he is one persistent Never given up guy, even though, and, and he already knows he's lost. Right? But yet he's still, you know, we're so quick in the, in, in, in the, in the Bible Belt of the world, we're so quick to harp on other religions for the way they do stuff. I'm gonna be honest with you. If the people who had a relationship with Yahweh would do what some of the religious people and groups are doing, we could develop a lot more relationships with Yahweh. Because they're hungry and they go out and they do this stuff. What, what does David do though? The Syrians get gathered up. Verse 17, when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel this time. Hold on, they want to come back at us again? Now note what else you got to note this time, guys. Now David's involved in the battle. He don't send somebody else this time to take care of business like he did in the beginning. This time, David had to come and not send others to get into the fight. There'll come a time when you got to get in the fight yourself and quit sending others to fight. What we saw, we say earlier, David's mighty men were nothing without him and he was nothing without them. So true. The battle isn't really over. They've got, they've got a little small win, a little small victory that's great, but it's not over until David comes on the scene. 
And here's what I got to point out, because this whole chapter starts with David's compassion, David's love and David's kindness. His compassion and his love and his kindness never negates his power. Because we're so quick to want to raise menly children, right? No, boy, don't you be soft. You man up. You man up. You be tough, right? David starts this this section with compassion, with kindness, with love, with grace. He's doing all the things that Christ mimics. And, and, and sometimes us tough dads try to act like isn't the right way of scripture to do. And yet at the end, he's still powerful enough to take care of business. Compassion, love, grace, mercy, all that good stuff. It, it doesn't negate your power. In my opinion, it makes you stronger because you know when to use what and how to use what. Maybe that's what a lot of believers need to get, right? We can be compassionate and still powerful at the same time. Now, sadly, I'm going to kind of, you've read the end on, on how they win and, and those that were remaining uh, all fell and, and worship. But, but since we're short on time, I, I just want to remind us of this because we got chapter 11 coming up. Now, I don't know how many of you know scripture and know stuff, but you've all read chapter 11 at one point in your life, I promise. You've all at least heard chapter 11 at one point. And, and here's the sad news at the end of this chapter. This chapter ends with unfinished business. This chapter ends with unfinished business. The, the Ammonites are still in their city. Joab, it even says that Joab returned to Jerusalem in the spring, which is when chapter 11 is going to come up. In the spring, David's going to send Joab and the army to deal with them uh, in Rabbath where they are as he waits in Jerusalem. While he's comfortably in Jerusalem is when he falls into sin with Bathsheba. So here's your last lesson maybe for the chapter. Unfinished business is going to come back to get you. Unfinished business will come back to get you. Many of us know the, the, the struggle that David had with the sin of Bathsheba, right? We know why he got in trouble because he was waiting in Jerusalem when he should have been in the battle. Well, maybe 2 Samuel chapter 10 is God trying to give David a warning by saying, look, man, your own army didn't take care of business until you came on the scene. Maybe chapter 10 was this giant warning because God knew the temptation and, and the sin that was going to get him. Maybe he knew when he tried to leave Chapter 10 into the into the battle with, with Joab that his army needed him and he didn't get the blessing of the battle until he went himself. And maybe all of it was a giant warning so that chapter 11 doesn't have to happen. So maybe to close right now for, for us this, this morning is this. If 2 Samuel 10 was God's gracious warning that David sadly wasted, then you please don't waste your warnings. Please don't waste your warnings. Yeah, chapter or verse 12 may be the the, the, the one that we all cling to, be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people, for the cities of God. May the Lord do what is right in his sight. David's army wins because of one reason, because God was with them. You will win your battles for one reason, because God is with you. Maybe the most memorable part this morning for us was, was, was in chapter 10, when his ambassadors are treated poorly. And, 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 and maybe this is the important lesson. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Last verse, I promise. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As his ambassadors, our King Jesus is sending us out to do his will. And you've got a decision to make. If you're going to be obedient and do the will of your king, or if you're going to do whatever emotions are leading you to do. Now, that doesn't mean you get to weigh out the good and the bad and all that. What that means, if God has told you to go be kind, compassionate, and loving on somebody, then you go do it. And you don't worry about their response. That's not for you. What's for you is your, your actions. Their response is on them. You be prepared because, unfortunately, here's, here's the truth we see in the story. Kindness sometimes isn't met back with kindness. And you need to be okay. You need to take that time to be with God and understand, what do I do now?
Don't let that thing discourage you. Joab didn't get discouraged through any of this. David doesn't even get discouraged, right? But they also don't ignore the abuse of others. They also realize that they need to ask God to help them handle the situation, and they do, and because they do, then the turnout turns out to be awesome. You know, we kind of really hadn't had a lot of of invitations, you know, whatever you want to call it, at, at the end, but this morning we are, and here's why. Because what a better time while you're stuck at your house. You should have already done this. But while you're stuck at your house to make a, a section of your house an altar. Not an altar for worshiping an idol or anything like that, but an altar where you deal with the business that God's called you to deal with. And, and I pray that you do, you do that this morning to start if you hadn't already done it. You know, maybe it's your war room, your prayer closet, whatever you want it to be. But but here, here's, here's my big prayer on this. Is, is that you do that today, and today, that's not something that'll last way longer than this pandemic outside. Because you'll come back into your house, whether it's in your living room, your bedroom, your computer room, your study room, whatever, you'll come back and you'll look at that area and be like, that's an area I did business with God. And it'll mean something to you. Is there anything special about an altar at a church? Nah. Same carpet, same wood. What's special is what we make it. What's special is what we've made it. Think about the sections of the, of the river where those first stones were, were placed for an altar that we just looked at not, not too long ago. I know it's been a couple of months, but, but think about that. Was it, was, it, was it really any spot different than any other spot in the river? Not really, other than the fact that that's where they had allowed God to do business with them. Will you allow God to do business with you this morning? Will you allow God to, to use something from this morning to impact your life this week? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word, God. God, I thank you for what you're doing, for what you have done, what you can do, Lord God, in our lives. And I just pray, Lord God, right now that as believers, wherever we are gathered, wherever we are seated, that we will not only open our, our, our eyes and our ears, but we'll open our mind and our hearts. God, we'll let you move in a special way inside each of us. And God, we will be obedient to the call that you put on us. To go forth and do whatever it is you called us to do. Despite whatever the circumstances and the reactions of others could be. God, I also pray that if it comes down to it, Lord God, that we will be courageous and bold when we need to be. That we will have righteous anger and we will fight the things of this world that you have called us to fight. That we will start caring about the things of you and the things of other people. Lord God, move in a special way now. God, God, do something I can't do. God, speak to us spiritually. Speak to us, Lord God. Move in a mighty way. Encourage us, Lord God, just to to be obedient to what you've got for us. In your great name we pray. Amen.